Hello? Oh, hi. Sorry. Run the back here on the porch. Hi. Hello. And welcome to Kraken's cabin. I thought this evening we could sit by the shore. Just washes up here. There's plenty of blankets over there, so grab your favourite. You can sit in the swinging bench. I love listening to the waves, don't you? Without even meaning to, have you noticed how it changes your breathing? Something about the rhythm of it all. You know, they say we evolved from creatures that escaped the oceans looking for food. I wonder how long it was before we began to regret that. I've been doing a lot of thinking this last week. Last time you were here, I remember I found some notes scribbled in the margins of Hansel and Gretel. Hang on. I've got them memorised. The woods are dark. The birds song sweet. The treasure lies where two rivers meet. The wolf in her den will watch from afar. One wrong move and she'll tear you apart. I have to admit, it shook me more than it appeared. I haven't been entirely truthful about my uncle and his cabin. You see, he's not dead. Or at least, as far as we know. He went missing. As you can tell from all of this, he loved to travel. Library upstairs contains so many maps, texts, all these curiosities that he collected and brought home. He left on a trip three years ago, and nobody's heard from him since, apart from one letter, and that went to the family lawyer. In that letter, he left this cabin and all of the contents to me. After a few years, he was pronounced dead. And that's when I was told of this place. I had no idea. I've never even met him. I heard of him. I knew his name. I came here. I'd hoped there'd be something, anything, that would tell me where he'd gone to, but there's nothing. I've searched through every letter, the drawers, the cupboards, all trunks in the attic, but there's nothing, not a single clue. At least, until I found that note. I think, well, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I think he wants me to find him. Because of my hikes, I knew the place that rhyming clue was referring to. I went back and again, there stood the wolf watching me from the glades, intently. I could hear the bird song, and I could hear the sound of the river nearby. So I turned, and I walked that way, carefully. And I found it, where one river intersected another, just like the bone said. There were these rocks 
stacked on top of each other. Higher than anything natural. So, I moved them. And I found this. It's a wooden box. It's a mirror. As you can see, the mirror is stained, old, broken. And there's these tentacles around the frame. Well, <laughs> there's no doubt it belonged to my uncle. So much of his stuff here has tentacles somewhere. I know it's the family theme, but... Anyway. There's also a note in there. And it just said, Reflections. When I came back, I went back to the library. Trying to work out what it's referring to, and... and then it hit me. Do you know why that library is confusing? It's so easy to get lost in. It's not organized in any obvious way. Not the Dewey Decimal System, not by author, not by color the way I did it in university. It's organized by theme. And one of those themes is reflections. Let me tell you, there are a lot of books on that, my friend. So, I've chosen a personal favorite. And I thought I would read it this evening for us both. Maybe it'll contain a clue. Maybe not. Quite long, though. So, when I see you've had enough, we'll bookmark it, and we'll come back to this. So, are you comfortable? Good. Then we'll begin. This is The Picture Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. The artist is the creator of beautiful things. To reveal art and conceal the artist is art scene. The critic is he who can translate into another manner or new material his impression of beautiful things. The highest as the lowest form of criticism is a mode of autobiography. Those who find ugly meanings in beautiful things are corrupt without being charming. This is a fault. Those who find beautiful meanings and beautiful things are the cultivated. For these, there is hope. They are the elect whom beautiful things mean only beauty. There is no such thing as a moral or immoral book. Books are well written or badly written. That is all. The 19th century dislike of realism is the rage of Caliban seeing his own face in a glass. The 19th century dislike of romanticism is the rage of Caliban not seeing his own face in a glass. The moral life of man forms part of the subject matter of the artist, but the morality of art consists in the perfect use of an imperfect medium. No artist desires to prove anything. Even things that are true can be proved. No artist has ethical sympathies. An ethical sympathy in an artist is an unpardonable mannerism of style. No artist is ever morbid. The artist can express everything. Thought and language are to the artist instruments of an art. Vice and virtue are the artist materials for an art. From the point of view of form, the type of all of the arts is the art of the musician. From the point of view of feeling, the actor's craft is the type. All art 
is at once surface and simple. Those who go beneath the surface do so at their peril. Those who read the symbol do so at their peril. It is the spectator, and not life, that art really mirrors. Diversity of opinion about a work of art shows that the work is new, complex, and vital. When critics disagree, the artist is in accord with himself. We can forgive a man for making a useful thing as long as he does not admire it. The only excuse for making a useless thing is that one admires it intensely. All art is quite useless. The studio was filled with the rich odour of roses, and when the light summer wind stirred amongst the trees of the garden, there came through the open door the heavy scent of the lilac, or the more delicate perfume of the pink florine thorn. From the corner of the divan of Persian saddlebags on which he was lying, smoking, as was his custom, innumerable cigarettes, Lord Henry Wotton could just catch the gleam of the honey-sweet and honey-coloured blossoms of the burning. His tremulous branches seemed hardly able to bear the burden of a beauty so flame-like as theirs. And now and then the fantastic shadows of birds in flight flitted along the long tusser silk curtains that were stretched in front of the huge window, producing a kind of momentary Japanese effect, making him think of those pallid, jade-faced painters of Tokyo who through the medium of an art that is necessarily immobile, seek to convey the sense of swiftness in motion. The sullen murmur of the bees shouldering their way through the unlong, unmown grass were circling with monotonous insistence around the dusty gilt horns of the straggling woodbine seemed to make the stillness more oppressive. The dim roar of London was like the bourbon note of a distant organ. In the centre of the room, clasped to an upright easel, stood the full-length portrait of a young man of extraordinary personal beauty. On in front of it, some little distance away, was sitting the artist himself, Basil Hallward, whose sudden disappearance some years ago caused, at the time, such public excitement and gave rise to so many strange conjectures. As the painter looked at the gracious and comely form, he had so skillfully mirrored in his art. A smile of pleasure passed across his face and seemed about to linger there. But he suddenly started up and, closing his eyes, placed his fingers upon the lids as though he sought to imprison within his brain some curious dream from which he feared he might awake. It is your work, Basil, the best thing that you have ever done, said Lord Henry languidly. You must certainly send it next year to the Grosvenor. The academy is too large and too vulgar. Whenever I have gone there, there have been either so many people that I have not been able to see the pictures, which is dreadful, or so many pictures that I have not even been able to see the people, which was worse. The Grosvenor is the only real place. I don't think I shall send it anywhere, he answered, tossing his head back in that odd way that used to make his friends laugh at him at Oxford. No, I won't send it anywhere. Lord Henry elevated his eyebrows and looked at him in amazement through the thin blue wreaths of smoke that curled up in such a fanciful war from his heavy opium-tainted cigarette. Not send it anywhere? My dear fellow, why? Have you any reason? 
What a chaps you painters are. You do anything in the world to gain a reputation. And as soon as you have one, you seem to want to throw it away. It is silly of you. There's only one thing in the world worse than being talked about. And that is not being talked about. A portrait like this would set you far and above all the young men in England. It would make the old men quite jealous. If old men were ever capable of any such emotion. I know you will laugh at me, he replied. But I can't really exhibit it. I've too much of myself into it. Lord Henry stretched himself out on the divan and laughed. Yes, I knew you would. But it's quite true, and all the same. Too much of yourself in it. Upon my word, Basil. I didn't know you were so vain. And I really can't see any resemblance between you, with your rugged strong face and your cold black hair, and this young Adonis, who looks as if he was made of ivory and rose leaves. Why, my dear Basil, he is a narcissist, and you, well, of course, you have an intellectual expression and all of that, but beauty, real beauty, ends where an intellectual expression begins. Intellect is, in of itself, made of exaggeration and destroys the harmony of any face. The moment one sits down to think, one becomes all nose, or all forehead, or something horrid. Look at the successful men in any of the learned professions. How perfectly hideous they are. Except, of course, in the church. But then, in the church, they don't think. A bishop keeps on saying at the age of 80 what he was told to say when he was a boy of 18. And as a natural consequence, he always looks absolutely delightful. You're a mysterious young friend, whose name you've never told me, but whose picture really fascinates me, never thinks. I feel quite sure of that. He's some brainless, beautiful creature. He should always be here in winter when we have no flowers to look at, and always here in summer when we want something to chill our intelligence. Don't flatter yourself, Blazel. You're not in the least like him. You don't understand me, Harry, answered the artist. Of course I'm not like him. I know that perfectly well. Indeed, I should be sorry to look at like him. You shrug your shoulders? I'm telling you the truth. There is a fatality about all physical and intellectual distinction, the sort of fatality that seems to dog through history the faltering steps of kings. It is better not to be different from one's fellows. The ugly and the stupid have the best of it in this world. They can sit at their ease and keep at the play. If they know nothing of victory, they are at least spurred the knowledge of defeat. They live as we should all live, undisturbed, indifferent, and without disquiet. They neither bring rain upon others, nor ever receive it from alien hands. Your rank and wealth, Harry, my brains, such as they are, my art, whatever it may be worth. Dorian Gray's good looks. We shall all suffer. For what the gods have given us. Suffer terribly. Dorian Gray? Is that his name? Asked Lord Henry, walking across the studio towards Basil Holbert. Yes, that is his name. I didn't intend to tell it to you. But why not? I can't explain. But I like people immensely and never tell their names to anyone. It's like surrendering or a part of them. I've grown to love secrecy. It seems to be the one thing that can make modern life mysterious or marvellous to us. The commonest thing is the delightful if only one hides it. When I leave town now, 
I'll never tell my people where I'm going. I did. I would lose all my pleasure. It is a silly habit, I dare say. But somehow it seems to bring a great deal of romance into one's life. I suppose you think of me awfully foolish about it. Not at all, answered Lord Henry. Not at all, my dear Basil. You seem to forget that I am married. And the one charm of marriage is that it makes life a deception absolutely necessary for both parties. I never know where my wife is, and my wife never knows what I am doing. When we meet, we do meet occasionally, when we dine out together or go down to the Dukes. We tell each other the most absurd stories with the most serious faces. My wife is very good at it. Much better, in fact, than I am. She never gets confused over her dates, and I always do. But when she does find me out, she makes no row at all. Sometimes wish she would, but she merely laughs at me. I hate the way you talk about your married life, Harry, said Basil Halbert, strolling through the door to led to the garden. I believe that you really are a good husband, but that you are thoroughly ashamed of your own virtues. You are an ordinary fellow. In fact, extraordinary. You never say a moral thing, and you never do a wrong thing. Your cynicism is simply a pose. Being natural is simply a pose. And the most irritating pose I know, cried Lord Henry, laughing. And the two young men went out into the garden together, and sconded themselves in a long bamboo seat that stood in the shade of the tall laurel bush. The sunlight slipped over the polished leaves, and in the grass white daisies were tremulous. After a pause, Lord Henry pulled out his watch. I'm afraid I must be going, Basil, he murmured. Before I go, I insist on you answering a question that I put to you some time ago. What is that? said the painter, keeping his eyes fixed on the ground. You know quite well. I do not, Harry. Well, I will tell you what it is. I want you to explain to me why you won't exhibit Dorian's picture. I want the real reason. I told you the real reason. No, you did not. You said it was because there was too much of yourself in it. Now that is childish. Harry, said Basil Hallward, looking him straight in the face. Every portrait that is painted with feeling is a portrait of the artist, not of the sitter. The sitter is merely the accident, the occasion. It is not he who is revealed by the painter. It is rather the painter who, on the coloured canvas, reveals himself. Well, the reason I will not exhibit this picture is that I'm afraid that I've shown in it the very secret of my own soul. Lord Henry laughed. What is that? he asked. I will tell you, said Halbert. But an expression of perplexity came over his face. I am all expectation, Basil, continued his companion, glancing at him. Well, there is very really little to tell, Harry, answered the painter. And I'm afraid you will hardly understand it. Perhaps you will hardly believe it. Lord Henry smiled, and, leaning down, plucked a pink-petaled daisy from the grass and examined it. I'm quite sure I shall understand it, he replied, gazing intently at the little golden-white feathered disc. And as for believing things, I can believe anything, provided that it is quite incredible. The wind shook some of the blossoms from the trees, and the heavy lilac blooms 
with their clustering stars moved to and fro in the languid air. Grasshopper began to chirrup by the wall. Like a blue thread, long thin dragonfly floated past on its brown gauze wings. Lord Henry felt as if he could hear Basil Hallward's heart beating and wondered what was coming. The story is simply this, said the painter after some time. Two months ago, I went to a crush at Lady Brandon's. You know we poor artists have to show ourselves in society from time to time, just to remind the public that we're not savages. With an evening coat and a white tie, as you told me once, anybody, even a stockbroker, can gain a reputation for being civilised. Well, after I'd been in the room about ten minutes, talking to huge overdressed dowagers and tedious academians, suddenly became conscious that someone was looking at me. I turned halfway round and saw Dorian Gray for the first time. When our eyes met, I felt that I was growing pale. A curious sensation of terror came over me. I knew that I had come face to face with someone whose mere personality was so fascinating that, if I allowed it to do so, it would absorb my whole nature, my whole soul, my very art itself. I did not want any external influence in my life. You know yourself, Harry, how independent I am by nature. I've always been my own master. Had to at least have always been so. Well, until I met Dorian Gray. Then... But I don't know how to explain it to you. Something seemed to tell me that I was on the verge of a terrible crisis in my life. I had a strange feeling that fate had in store for me exquisite joys and exquisite sorrows. I grew afraid. I turned, quit the room, and it was not conscience that made me do so. It was a sort of cowardice. I take no credit to myself for trying to escape. Conscience and cowardice are really the same things, Basil. Conscience is the trade name of the firm. That is all. I don't believe that, Harry. And I don't believe that you do either. However, whatever was my motive, and I may have been pride, for I used to be very proud, I certainly struggled to the door. And there, of course, I stumbled against Lady Brandon. You're not going to run away so soon, Mr. Hallward, she screamed out. You know, her curiously shrill voice. Yes. She is a peacock and everything but beauty, said Lord Henry, pulling the daisy to bits with his long, nervous fingers. Could not get rid of her. She brought me up the royalties, people with stars and garters, and elderly ladies with gigantic tiaras and parrot noses. She spoke of me as her dearest friend. I'd only met her once before, but she took it in her head to lionise me. I believe some picture of mine had made a great success at the time, or at least had been chattered about in the penny newspapers, which is the 19th century standard of immorality. And suddenly, I found myself face to face with the young man whose personality had so strangely stirred me. We were quite close, almost touching. Our eyes met again. It was reckless of me, but I asked Lady Brandon to introduce me to him. Perhaps it was not so reckless after all. It was simply inevitable. We would have spoken to each other without any introduction. I'm, I'm sure of that. Dorian told me so afterwards. He too felt that we were destined to know each other. 
And how did Lady Brandon describe this wonderful young man? Asked his companion. And then she goes in for giving a rapid precisis to all of her guests. I remember bringing me up to Truslin, a red-faced old gentleman covered all over with orders and ribbons and hissing into my ear. In a tragic whisper which must have been perfectly audible to everybody in the room. The most astounding details. I simply fled. I like to find out people for myself. But Lady Brandon treats her guests exactly as an auctioneer treats his goods. She either explains them entirely away, or tells everyone everything about them, except what one wants. No. Poor Lady Brandon. You are hard on her, Harry, said Hallward, listlessly. My dear fellow. She tried to find a saloon, and only succeeded in opening a restaurant. How could I admire her? But tell me, what did she say about Mr. Dorian Gray? Oh, something like, charming boy, her dear mother, and I would be absolutely inseparable. Quite forget what he does. Afraid he doesn't do anything. Oh yes, plays the piano. Or is it the violin, dear Mr. Gray? Neither of us could help from laughing, and we became friends at once. Laughter is not at all a bad beginning for a friendship, and it's far the best ending for one, said the Lord, plucking another daisy. Colbert shook his head. You don't understand what friendship is, Harry, he murmured. Or at least what anemone is, for that matter. You like everyone, and that's to say you're indifferent to everyone. How horribly unjust of you, cried Lord Henry, tilting his head back and looking up at the little clouds that like reveled skeins of glossy white silk, were drifting across the hollow turquoise of the summer sky. Yes, quite horribly unjust of you. I make a great difference between people. I choose my friends for their good looks, my acquaintances for their good characters, and my enemies for their good intellects. A man cannot be too careful in the choice of his enemies. I've not got one who is a fool. They are all men of some intellectual power. Consequently, they all appreciate me. Is that very vain of me? I think it is rather vain. I should think it was, Harry. But according to your category, I must be merely an acquaintance. My dear old Basil, you're much more of an acquaintance. And much less than a friend. Sort of brother, I suppose? Oh, brothers. I don't care for brothers. My elder brother won't die, and my younger brothers never seem to do anything else. Harry, exclaimed Hallward, frowning. My dear fellow, I'm not quite serious. But I can't help detesting my relations. I suppose it comes from the fact that none of us can stand other people having the same faults as ourselves. I quite sympathise with the rage of the English democracy against what they call the vices of the upper orders. The masses feel that drunkenness, stupidity, and immorality should be their own special property, and that if any one of us makes an ass of himself, he is poaching from their preserves. When Per Southwark goes to the divorce court, their indignation was quite magnificent. And yet I don't suppose the 10% of the proletariat live correctly. I don't agree with a single word that you've said. And what's more, Harry, Phil, you don't either. Lord Henry stroked his pointed beard, tapped the toe of his patent leather boot with the tasseled ebony cane. How English you are, Basil, 
That is the second time you've made that observation. If one puts forward an idea to a true Englishman, always a rash thing to do. He never dreams of considering whether the idea is right or wrong. The only thing he considers of any importance is whether or not one believes it himself. Now, the virtue of an idea that has nothing whatsoever to do with the sincerity of the man who expresses it. Indeed, the probabilities are more insincere that the man is, the more purely intellectual will the idea be. As in that case, it will not be coloured by either his wants, his desires, or his prejudices. However, I don't propose to discuss politics, sociology, or metaphysics with you. I like persons better than principles, and I like persons with no principles better than anything else in the world. So, tell me more about Mr. Dorian Gray. How often do you see him? Every day. I couldn't be happy if I didn't see him every day. He is absolutely necessary to me. How extraordinary. I thought you would never care for anything but your art. He is all my art to me now, said the painter gravely. I sometimes think, Harry, that there are only two eras of any importance in the world's history. The first is the appearance of a new medium for art, and the second is the appearance of a new personality for art, also. What the invention of the oil painting was to the Venetians, the face of the Nautilus was to the late Greek sculpture, and the face of Dorian Gray will someday be to me. It is not merely that I paint from him, draw from him, sketch from him. And of course I've done all of that. But he is much more to me than a model or a sitter. I won't tell you that I am dissatisfied with what I have done of him, or that his beauty is such that art cannot express it. There is nothing that art cannot express, and I know that the work that I've done, since I've met Dorian Gray, is good work, and it is the best work of my life. But in some curious way, I wonder if you'll understand me, but his personality has suggested to me an entirely new manner in art, an entirely new mode of style. I see things differently. I think of them differently. I can now recreate life in a way that was hidden to me before. A dream of form and days of thought. Who is it that says that? I forget. But it is what Dorian Gray has been to me. The merely visible presence of this lad, for he seems to me little more than a lad, though he is really over twenty. His merely visible presence. I wonder, can you realise that all that means? Unconsciously, he defines for me the lines of a fresh school. A school that is to have in all of the passion of the romantic spirit, all the perfection of the spirit that is Greek, the harmony of soul and body, how much that is. We in our madness have separated the two, and I have invented a realism that is vulgar, an ideality that is void, Harry. Harry, only you knew what Dorian Gray is to me. You remember that landscape of mine, for which Agnew offered me such a huge price, but which I would not part with? It is one of the best things that I've ever done. Why is it so? Because while I was painting in it, Dorian Gray sat beside me. Some subtle influence passed from him to me, and for the first time in my life I saw the plain woodland, the wonder that I've always looked for, and always missed. Basil, this is extraordinary. I must see Dorian Gray. Colbert got up from his seat and walked up and down the garden. 
and after some time he came back. Harry, he said. Dorian Gray is to me simply a mud of an art. You might see nothing in it. I see everything in it. He is ever more present in my work than when no image of him is there. He is a suggestion, as I've said, of a new manner. I find him in the curves of certain lines, in the loveliness and the subtleties of certain colours. That is all. Then why won't you exhibit his portrait? asked Lord Henry. Because, without intending it, I've put into it some sort of expression of all this curious, artistic idolatry, of which, of course, I've never cared to speak to him. He knows nothing about it. He shall never know anything about it. The world might guess it. And I will not bear my soul to their shallow, prying eyes. My heart shall never be put under their microscope. There's too much of myself in the thing, Harry. Too much of myself. Poets are not so scrupulous as you are. They know how useful passion is for publication. Nowadays, a broken heart will run to many editions. And I hate them for it, cried Hallward. An artist should create beautiful things, but should put nothing of his own life into them. We live in an age when men treat art as if it were meant to be a form of autobiography. We have lost the abstract sense of beauty. Someday I will show the world what it is. For that reason, the world shall never know or see my portrait of Dorian Gray. I think you're wrong, Basil, but I won't argue with you. That is only the intellectually lost to ever argue. Tell me, is Dorian Gray very fond of you? Painter considered for a few moments. He likes me, he answered after a pause. I know he likes me. Of course, I flatter him dreadfully. I find a strange pleasure in saying things to him that I know I shall be sorry for having said. As a rule, he is charming to me, when we sit in the studio and talk of a thousand things. Now and then, however, he is horribly thoughtless. It seems to take a real delight in giving me pain. And then I feel, Harry, that I have given away my whole soul to someone who treats it as if it were a flower, or put it in his coat, a bit of decoration to charm his vanity, an ornament for a summer's day. Days in summer, Basil, are apt to linger, murmured Lord Henry. Perhaps he will tire sooner than he will. It is a sad thing to think of, but there is no doubt that genius lasts longer than beauty. That accounts for the fact that we will all take such pains to overeducate ourselves. In the wild struggle for existence, we want to have something that endures, and so we fill our minds with rubbish and facts, and the silly hope of keeping our place. The thoroughly well-informed man. Oh, that is the modern ideal. And in the mind of the thoroughly well-informed man is a dreadful thing. It is like a bric-a-brac shop, all monsters and dust, with everything priced above its proper value. I think you will tire first, all the same. Someday you will look at your friend, and he will seem to you to be a little out of drawing. Or you won't like his tone of colour or something. You'll bitterly reproach him in your own heart, and seriously think that he has behaved very badly to you. And the next time that he calls, you'll be perfectly cold and indifferent. It'll be a great pity, for it will alter you. What you've told me is quite a romance. 
a romance of art, one might call it. And the worst of having a romance of any kind is that it leaves one so unromantic. Harry, don't talk like that. As long as I live, the personality of Dorian Gray will dominate me. Can't feel what I feel. You? You change too often. My dear Basil, that is exactly why I can feel it. Those who are faithful know only the trivial side of love. It is the faithless who know love's tragedies. And with that, Lord Henry struck a light on a dainty silver case and began to smoke a cigarette with a self-conscious and satisfied air, as if he had summed up the world in a phrase. There was a rustle of chirping sparrows in the green lacquer leaves of the ivy. The blue cloud shadows chased themselves across the grass like swallows. How pleasant it was in the garden, and how delightful other people's emotions were. Much more delightful than their ideas, it seemed to him. One's own soul, and the passion of one's friends, those were the most fascinating things in life. He pictured to himself with silent amusement the tedious luncheon that he had missed by staying so long with Basil Howard. How he had gone to his aunt's. He would have been sure to meet Lord Goodbody there, and the whole conversation would have been for the feeding of the poor and the necessity for model lodging houses. Each class would have preached the importance of those virtues, for whose exercise there was no necessity in their own lives. The rich would have spoken on the value of thrift, and the idle glow and eloquent over the dignity of labour. It was charming to have escaped all of that. When he thought of his aunt, an idea seemed to strike him. He turned to Hallward and said, My dear fellow, I've just remembered. Remembered what, Harry? Where I heard the name of Dorian Gray. Where was it? Asked Hallward with a slight frown. Don't look so angry, Basil. It was at my aunt's, Lady Agatha's. She told me she discovered a wonderful young man who was going to help her in the East End, and that his name was Dorian Gray. Bound to appreciate that she never told me he was good-looking. Women have no appreciation of good looks. At least, good women have not. She said that he was very earnest, and he had a beautiful nature. I at once pictured to myself a creature with spectacles and lank hair, horribly freckled, and trampling around on huge feet. But which had no one was your friend. Very glad you didn't, Harry. Why? I don't want you to meet him. You don't want me to meet him? No. Mr. Dorian Gray's in the studio, sir, said the butler, coming into the garden. Well, you must introduce me now, cried Lord Henry, laughing. Painter turned to his servant. He stood blinking in the sunlight. Ask Mr. Gray to wait, Parker. I shall be in a few moments. The man bowed and went up to the walk. Then he turned to Lord Henry. Dorian Gray is my dearest friend, he said. He has a simple and beautiful nature. Your aunt was quite right in what she said of him. Don't spoil him. Don't try to influence him. Your influence would be bad. The world is wide, and has many marvellous people in it. So please, don't take away from me the one person who gives to my art whatever charm it possesses. My life as an artist depends on him. Mind, Harry. I trust you. He spoke very slowly, 
and the words seemed wrung out of him against his will. Nonsense, you talk, said Lord Henry, smiling. And taken Hallward by the arm, he almost led him into the house. Chapter 2 As they entered, they saw Dorian Gray. He was seated at the piano, with his back to them, turning over pages of a volume of Schulman's forest scenes. You must lend these to me, Basil, he cried. I want to learn them. They are perfectly charming. That entirely depends on how you sit today, Dorian. I am tired of sitting, and I don't want a life-size portrait of myself, answered the lad, swinging round on the music stool in a willful, petulant manner. When he caught sight of Lord Henry, a faint blush coloured his cheeks for a moment, and he started up. I beg your pardon, Basil, but I didn't know you had anyone with you. This is Lord Henry Wooden, Dorian, an old Oxford friend of mine. I've just been telling him what a capital sitter you were, and now you've spoiled everything. You have not spoiled my pleasure in meeting you, Mr. Gray, said Lord Henry, stepping forward and extending his hand. My aunt's often spoken to me about you. You're one of her favourites, and I, I'm afraid, are one of her victims also. Ah. I'm in Lady Agatha's black books at present, answered Dorian, with a funny look of petulance. promised to go to the club in Whitechapel with her last Tuesday, and I really forgot all about it. We were to have played a duet together. Three duets, I believe. I don't know what she'll say to me. I'm far too frightened to call. Oh, I will, well, I will make your peace with my aunt. She is quite devoted to you. And I don't think it really matters about you not being there. The audience probably thought it was a duet. When Agatha sits down the piano, she makes quite enough noise for two people. And that is very hard to her, and not very nice to me, answered Dorian, laughing. Lord Henry looked at him. Yes, he was certainly wonderfully handsome, with his finely curved scarlet lips, his frank blue eyes, his crisp golden hair. There was something in his face that made one trust him at once. All the candour of youth was there, as well as all of youth's passionate purity. One felt that he had kept himself unspotted in the world. No wonder Basil Hallward worshipped him. You are too charming to go in for philanthropy, Mr. Gray. Far too charming. And Lord Henry flung himself down on the divan and opened up his cigarette case. The painter had already begun mixing his colours and getting his brushes ready. He was looking worried. And when he heard Lord Henry's last remark, he glanced at him, hesitated for a moment, and then said, Harry, I want to finish this picture today. Would you think it awfully rude of me if I asked you to go away? Lord Henry smiled and looked at Dorian Gray. Am I to go, Mr. Gray? he asked. Please don't, Lord Henry. I see that Basil is in one of his silky moves, and I can't burn him when he sulks. Besides, I want to tell you to tell me why I should not go in for philanthropy. I don't know that I should tell you that, Mr. Gray. It is so tedious a subject that one should never have to talk seriously about it. But I certainly shall not run away now that you've asked me to stop. You don't really mind, do you, Basil? You've often told me that you like your sitters to have someone to chat to. Holbert bit his lip. 
If Dorian wishes it, of course you must stay. Dorian's whims are laws to everybody, except himself. Lord Henry took up his hat and gloves. You're very pressing, Basil. But I am afraid I must go. I've promised to meet a man at the Orleans. Goodbye, Mr. Gray. Come and see me some afternoon in Curzon Street. I'm nearly always home at five o'clock. Write to me when you're coming. I should be sorry to miss you. Basil, cried Dorian Gray. If Lord Henry Wotton goes, I shall go too. You never open your lips when you're painting, and it is horribly dull standing on a platform and trying to look pleasant. Ask him to stay. I insist upon it. Stay, Harry. To oblige Dorian. And to oblige me, said Halbert, gazing intently at his picture. It is quite true. I never talk when I'm working, and I never listen either, and I must be dreadfully tedious for my unfortunate sitters. I beg you to stay. But what about my man at the Orleans? The painter laughed. I don't think there will be any difficulty about that. Sit down again, Harry. And now, Dorian, get up on the platform. Don't move about too much, or pay any attention to what Lord Henry says. He has a very bad influence over all of his friends, with the single exception of myself. Dorian Gray stepped up on the dais, with the air of a young Greek martyr. I made little new discontent to Lord Henry, to whom he'd rather taken a fancy. He was so unlike Basil. They made a delightful contrast, and he had such a beautiful voice. After a few moments, he said to him, Have you really a very bad influence, Lord Henry? As bad as Basil says. Well, there is no such thing as a good influence, Mr. Gray. All influence is immoral. Immoral from the scientific point of view. Why? Because to influence a person is to give them one's own soul. He does not think his natural thoughts or burn with his natural passion. His virtues are not real to him. His sins, if there are such things as sins, are borrowed. He becomes an echo of someone else's music, an actor of a part he has not written for himself. The aim of life is self-development, to realise one's nature perfectly. That is what each of us are here for. People are afraid of themselves nowadays. They've forgotten the highest of all duties, the duty that one owes to oneself. Of course, they're charitable. They feed the hungry and clothe the beggar. But their own souls starve. And they are naked. Courage has gone out of our race. Perhaps we never really had it. The terror of society, which is the basis of morals. Terror of God, which is the secret of religion. Those are just two of the things that govern us. And yet, just turn your head a little more to the right, Dorian. Like a good boy, said the painter deep in his work, and conscious only that a look had come into the lad's face that he'd never seen there before. And yet, continued Lord Henry, in his low musical voice, with that graceful wave of the hand that was always so characteristic of him, that he had even in his eating days. I believe that if one were to live out his life fully and completely, were to give form to every feeling, expression to every thought, reality to every dream, I believe that the word would gain such a fresh impulse of joy that we would forget all of the maladies of medievalism and return to the Hellenistic ideal. To something finer, richer than the Hellenistic ideal, it may be. 
But the bravest man amongst us is still afraid of himself. Mutilation of the savage has its tragic survival and self-denial that mars our own lives. We are punished for our refusals. Every impulse that we strive to strangle broods in the mind and poisons us. The body sins once and is done with its sin, for action is a mode of purification. Nothing remains then but the recollection of a pleasure or the luxury of a regret. The only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it. Resist it, and your soul grows sick with longing for the things that it is forbidden to itself, with desire for its monstrous laws that have made us monstrous and unlawful. It's been said that the great events of the world would all take place in the brain. It is in the brain, and the brain only, that the great sins of the world would take place also. You, Mr. Gray, you yourself, with your rose-red youth and your rose-white boyhood, you've had passions that have made you afraid, thoughts that have been filled with terror, daydreams and sleeping dreams whose mere memory might stain your cheek with shame. Stop, faltered Dorian Gray. Stop, you, you bewilder me. I don't know what to say. There is some answer to you, but I can't find it. Don't speak. Let me think. Or rather, let me try not to think. Nearly ten minutes he stood there, motionless, parted lips and eyes strangely bright. He was dimly conscious that entirely fresh influences were at work on him. Yet they seemed to him to have come really from himself. The few words that Basil's friend had said to him, words spoken by chance, no doubt, and with willful paradox in them, had touched some secret chord that had never been touched before, but that he felt now was vibrating and throbbing to curious pulses. Music had stirred him like that. Music had not troubled him many times, but music was not articulate. It was not a new word, but rather another chaos that created in us. Words. Mere words. How terrible they were. How clear and vivid and cruel. One could not escape from them. And yet, what a subtle magic there was in them. They seemed to have a great plastic form to formless things, and to have a music of their own as sweet as of file or of lute. Mere words. Was there anything so real as words? Yes. There had been things in his boyhood that he'd not understood, and he understood them now. Life suddenly became fierily coloured to him. It seemed to him that he was walking in fire. Why did he not know it? With a subtle smile, Lord Henry watched him. He knew the precise psychological moment when to say nothing. He felt intensely interested. He was amazed at the sudden impression that his words had produced, and remembering a book that he'd read when he was sixteen. A book which had been revealed much to him had not been known before. He'd wonder whether Dorian Gray was passing through a similar experience. He had merely shot an arrow into the air. Had it hit the mark? Fascinating this lad was. Hallward painted away with that marvellous bold touch of his and had the true refinement and perfect delicacy that at an art, at any rate, comes only from strength. He was unconscious of the silence. Basil, 
I'm tired of standing, cried Dorian Gray suddenly. I must go out and sit in the garden. There is stifling in here. My dear fellow, I am so sorry. When I'm painting, I can't think of anything else. But you've never sat better. You were perfectly still, and it caught the effect that I wanted. The half-parted lips, the bright look in your eyes. I don't know what Harry has been saying to you, but he most certainly made you the most wonderful expression. I suppose he has been paying you compliments. You mustn't believe a word that he says. He has certainly not been paying me compliments. Perhaps that is the reason I don't believe anything he's told me. You know you believe it all, said Lord Henry, looking at him with his dreamy, languorous eyes. I will go out into the garden with you. It is terribly hot in the studio, Basil. Let's have something iced to drink. Something with strawberries in it. Certainly, Harry. Just touch the bell, and when Parker comes, I'll tell him what you want. I've got to go work up this background, so I might join you later on. Don't keep Dorian too long. I've never been in better form for painting than I am today. This is going to be my masterpiece. It is my masterpiece as it stands. Lord Henry went out to the garden and found Dorian Gray burying his face in a great cool lilac blossoms, feverishly drinking in their perfume as if it had been wine. He came quite close to him and put his hand upon his shoulder. You're quite right to do that, he murmured. Nothing can cure the soul but the senses, just as nothing can cure the senses but the soul. The lad started and drew back. He was bareheaded, and the leaves had tossed his rebellious curls and tangled all their gilded threads. There was a look of fear in his eyes, such as people have when they're suddenly awakened. His finely chiselled nostrils quivered, and some hidden nerve shook the scarlet of his lips and left them trembling. Yes, continued Lord Henry, that is one of the great secrets of life. To cure the soul by means of the senses, and the senses by means of the soul. You're a wonderful creation. You know more than you think you know. Just as you know less than you want to know. Dorian Gray frowned and turned his head away. He could not help liking the tall, graceful young man who was standing by him. His romantic olive-coloured face and worn expression interested him. There was something in his low, languid voice that was absolutely fascinating. His cool, white, flower-like hands, even, had a curious charm. They moved as he spoke, like music. They seemed to have a language of their own. But he felt afraid of them, unashamed of being afraid. Why'd it been left for a stranger to feel him to himself? He had known Basil Hallward for months, but the friendship between them had never altered him. Suddenly there had come someone across his life who seemed to have disclosed to him life's mystery. And yet, what was there to be afraid of? He was not a schoolboy or a girl. It was absurd to be frightened. Let us go and sit in the shade, said Lord Henry. Parker has brought out the drinks, and if you stay any longer in this glare, you will be quite spoiled, and Basil will never paint you again. You really mustn't allow yourself to become sunburnt. It would be unbecoming. What can it matter? cried Dorian Gray, laughing, as he sat down on the seat at the end of the garden. It should matter everything to you, Mr. Gray. Why? Because you have the most marvellous youth. 
Youth is the one thing worth having. I don't feel like that, Lord Henry. No. You don't feel it now. But someday, when you're old and wrinkled and ugly, when thought has seared your forehead with its lines and passion branded your lips with its hideous fires, you will feel it. You'll feel it terribly. Now, wherever you go, you'll charm the world. Will it always be so? You have a wonderfully beautiful face, Mr. Gray. Don't frown. You have. And beauty is the form of genius. It is higher, indeed, than genius, as it needs no explanation. It is of the great facts of the world, like sunlight or springtime, or the reflection in dark waters of that silver shell we call the moon. It cannot be questioned. It has its divine right of sovereignty. It makes princes of those who have it. You smile? When you've lost it, you won't smile. Say sometimes that beauty is only superficial. That may be so. But at least it's not so superficial as thought is. To me, beauty is the wonder of words. It is the only shallow people who do not judge it by appearances. To me, beauty is the wonder of wonders. It is only shallow people who do not judge it by appearances. The true mystery of the world is the visible, not the invisible. Yes, Mr. Gray. The gods have been good to you. But what the gods give quickly, they take away. You've only a few years in which to live, really, perfectly and fully. When your youth goes, your beauty will go with it. And then you'll suddenly discover that there are no triumphs left for you. Or have to consent yourself with those mean triumphs that the memory of your past will make even more bitter than the defeat. Every month, as it wanes, brings you nearer to something dreadful. Time is jealous of you, and wars against your lilies and your roses. You'll become sallow and hollow-cheeked and dull-eyed, and you'll suffer horribly. Realize your youth while you have it. Don't squander the gold of your days, listening to the tedious, trying to improve the hopeless failure, or giving away your life to the ignorant, the common, the vulgar. These are the sickly aims, the false ideals of our age. Live. Live the wonderful life that is in you. Let nothing be lost upon you. Be always searching for new sensations. Be afraid of nothing. A new hedonism. That is what our century wants. You might be its visible symbol. With your personality, there's nothing you couldn't do. The world belongs to you for a season. The moment I met you, I saw you were really quite unconscious of what you really are. Of what you really might be. There was so much in you that charmed me that I felt I must tell you something about yourself. I thought how tragic it was it would be if you were wasted. But there's such little time that your youth will last. Such a little time. The common hill flowers wither, but they blossom again. The laburnum will be as yellow next June as it is now. In a month there will be no purple stars on the clematis. Year after year the green night of its leaves will hold its purple stars. We never get back our youth. The pulse of joy that beats in us at twenty becomes sluggish. Our limbs feel, our senses rot. We degenerate into hideous puppets, haunted by the memory of the passions of when we were too much afraid, and the exquisite temptations that we had not the courage to yield to. Youth. Youth. 
There's absolutely nothing in the world but use. Dorian Gray listened, open-eyed and wondering. The spray of lilac fell from his hand upon the gravel. The furry beak came and buzzed around it for a moment. Then it began to scramble all over the oval, stellated globe with the tiny blossoms. You watch it with that strange interest in trivial things that we try to develop when things of high import make us afraid. Or when we're stirred by some new emotion for which we cannot find expression. Or when some thought that terrifies us lays sudden siege to the brain and calls us to yield. After a time, the bee flew away. He saw it creeping into the steam trumpet of a Tyrian convalus. The flower seemed to quiver and then sway gently to and fro. Suddenly, the painter appeared at the door of the studio and made staccato signs for them to come in. They turned to each other and smiled. I am waiting, he cried. Do come in. The light is quite perfect and you can bring your drinks. They rose up and sauntered down the walk together. Two green and white butterflies fluttered past them, and in the pear tree at the corner of the garden a thrush began to sing. You're glad you have met me, Mr. Grey, said Lord Henry, looking at him. Yes, I am glad now. I wonder shall I always be glad? Always. <laughs> that is a dreadful word. It makes me shudder when I hear it. Women are so fond of using it. They spoil every romance by trying to make it last forever. It is a meaningless word too. The only difference between a caprice and a lifelong passion is that the caprice lasts a little bit longer. As they entered the studio, Dorian Gray put up his hand upon Lord Henry's arm. In that case, let our friendship be a caprice, he murmured, flushing at his own boldness, then stepped up to the platform and resumed his pose. Lord Henry flung himself into the large wicker armchair and watched him. The sweep and dash of the brush on the canvas made the only sound that broke the stillness, except when, now and then, Albert stepped back to look at his work from a distance. In the slanting beams that streamed through the open doorway, the dust danced and was golden. The heavy scent of roses seemed to brood over everything. After about a quarter of an hour, Albert stopped painting looked for a time at Dorian Gray, and then for a long time at the picture, biting the end of one of his large brushes and frowning. It is quite finished, cried at last, and stooping down he wrote his name in the long vermilion letters on the left-hand corner of the canvas. Lord Henry came over and examined the picture. It was certainly a wonderful work of art, and a wonderful likeness as well. My dear fellow, I congratulate you most warmly, he said. It is the finest portrait of modern times, Mr. Gray. Come on, come over and look at it yourself. The lad started, as if awakened from some dream. Was really finished, he murmured, stepping down from the platform. Quite finished, said the painter, and you have sat splendidly today. I'm awfully obliged to you. That is certainly due to me, broke in Lord Henry. Isn't it, Mr. Gray? During Gray, he had no answer. Passed listlessly in front of his picture and turned towards it. When he saw it, he drew back, and his cheeks flushed for a moment with pleasure. 
A look of joy came into his eyes, as if he recognized himself for the first time. He stood there motionless and in wonder, dimly conscious that the Holbert was speaking to him, but not catching the meaning of his words. The sense of his own beauty came on him like a revelation. He had never felt it before. Basil Howard's compliments had seemed to him to be merely charming exaggerations of friendship. He had listened to them, laughed at them, forgotten them. They did not influence his nature. Then had come Lord Henry Wadden, with a strange panic on youth, his terrible warning of its brevity. That had stirred him at the time, and now, as he stood gazing at the shadow of his own loveliness, the full reality of the description flashed across him. Yes, there would be a day when his face would be wrinkled and wizened, his eyes dim and colourless, grace of his figure broken and deformed. The scarlet would pass away from his lips, and the gold steal from his hair. The life that was to make his soul would mar his beauty. He would become dreadful, hideous, and uncouth. As he thought of it, a sharp pang of pain struck through him like a knife and made each still get fibre of his nature quiver. His eyes deepened into amethyst, and across them came a mist of tears. felt as if a hand of ice had just been laid upon his heart. Don't you like it? cried Holbert, at last, stung a little by the lad's silence, not understanding what it meant. Of course he likes it, said Lord Henry. Who wouldn't like it? It's one of the greatest things in modern art. I will give you anything you'd like to ask for it. I must have it. It's not my property, Harry. Whose property is it? Dorian's, of course, answered the painter. He is a very lucky fellow. How sad it is, murmured Dorian Gray, with his eyes still fixed upon his own portrait. How sad it is. I shall grow old and horrible and dreadful. I will never be older than this particular day of June. If only it were the other way. If it were I who would always be young and the picture that was to grow old. For that, for that, I would give everything. Yes, there is nothing in the whole world I would not give. Give my soul for that. It would hardly care for such an arrangement, Basil, cried Lord Henry, laughing. It would be rather hard lines on your work. I should object very strongly, Harry, said Holbert. Dorian Gray turned and looked at him. I believe you would, Basil. You like your art better than your friends. I am no more to you than a green, bronze figure. Hardly as much, I dare say. The painter stared in amazement. It was so unlike Dorian to speak like that. What had happened? He seemed quite angry. His face was flushed and his cheeks burning. Yes, continued. I am less to you than your ivory Hermes or your silver fawn. You will like them always. How long will you like me? Till I have my first wrinkle, I suppose. I know now that when one loses one's good looks, whatever they may be, one loses everything. Your picture has taught me that. Lord Henry Wotton is perfectly right. Youth is the only thing worth having. When I find that I'm growing old, I shall kill myself. Holbert turned pale, caught his hand. 
Dorian, Dorian, he cried, don't talk like that. I've never had such a friend as you, and I shall never have another. You're not jealous of material things, are you? You, you're finer than any of them? I'm jealous of everything whose beauty does not die. I'm jealous of the portrait that you've painted of me. Why should it keep what I must lose? Every moment that passes takes something from me and gives something to it. If only it were the other way. If the picture could change and I could always be the way I am now. Why did you paint it? It'll mock me one day. Mock me horribly. The hot tears welled in his eyes. He tore his hand away and flinging himself on the divan, he buried his face into the cushions as though he was praying. This is your doing, Harry, said the painter bitterly. Lord Henry shrugged his shoulders. Is the real Dorian Gray? That is all. It is not. If it is not, what have I to do with it? You should have gone away when I asked you. I stayed when you asked me, was Lord Henry's answer. Harry, I can't quarrel with two of my best friends at once, but between you both you have made me hate the finest piece of work I have ever done, and I will destroy it. What is it but canvas and colour? I will not let it come across our three lives and mar them. Dorian Gray lifted his golden head from the pillow, and with pallid face and tear-stained eyes looked at him. As he walked over to the dill painting table that was set beneath the high curtained window. What was he doing there? His fingers were straying about among all the litter of the tin tubes and dry brushes, seeking for something. Yes, it was for the long palette knife, and with its thin blade of lithe steel. He found it at last. He was going to rip up the canvas. With the stifled sob, the lad leaped from the couch and rushing over to Hallward tore the knife out of his hand and flung it to the end of the studio. Don't, Basil, don't, he cried. It would be murder. Glad you appreciate my work at last, Orient, said the painter, coldly, when he'd recovered from his surprise. Never thought you would. She it? Come in love with it, Basil. It's a part of myself. I can feel that. Well, as soon as you're dry, she'll be varnished and framed and sent home. They can do what you like with yourself. And he walked across the room and rang the bell for tea. You'll have tea, of course, Dorian. So will you, Harry? Or do you object to such simple pleasures? I adore simple pleasures, said Lord Henry. They're the last refuge of the complex. But I don't like scenes, except on the stage. What absurd fellows you both are. Both of you. wonder who it was that defined man as a rational animal. That's the most premature definition that's ever been given. Man is many things, but he's not rational. I'm glad he's not. After all, though I wish you chaps would not squabble over the picture. You'd much better let me have it, Basil. This silly boy doesn't want it, and I really do. If you let anyone have it but me, Basil, I shall never forgive you, cried Dorian Gray. And I don't allow people to call me a silly boy. You know the picture's yours, Dorian. I gave it to you before it existed. And you know you've been a little silly, Mr. Gray, and that you don't really object to being reminded that you're extremely young. 
I should have objected very strongly this morning, Lord Henry. And this morning. We have lived since then. There came a knock at the door and the butler entered with a laden tea tray and set it down on the small Japanese table. There was a rattle of cups and saucers and the hissing of a fluted Georgian urn. Globe-shaped china dishes were brought in by a page. Dorian Gray went over and poured out the tea. The two men sauntered languidly to the table and examined what was under the covers. Let's go to the theatre tonight, said Lord Henry. There's sure to be something on, somewhere. I've promised to dine at White's. But it is only with an old friend, and I can send him a wire to say that I am ill, or that I am prevented from coming in consequence of a subsequent engagement. I think that would be a rather nice excuse. Would have all the surprise of candour. It is such a bore putting on one's dress clothes, muttered Hallward. And when one has them on, they're so hard. Yes, answered Lord Henry, dreamily. Costume of the 19th century is detestable. It's so sombre, depressing. Sin is the real colour element left in modern life. You really must not say things like that before Dorian, Harry. Before which Dorian? The one who's pouring out tea for us or the one in the picture? Before either. I should like to come to the theatre with you, Lord Henry, said the lad. Then you shall come, and you will come too, Basil, won't you? I can't, really. I would rather not. I have a lot of work to do. Well, then, you and I will go alone, Mr. Gray. I should like that awfully. The painter bit his lip and walked over, cup in hand, to the picture. I shall stay with the real Dorian, he said, sadly. Is it the real Dorian? cried the original of the portrait, strolling across to him. Am I really like that? Yes, you're just like that. How wonderful, Basil. At least you're like it in appearance, but it will never alter, said Hallward. That is something. What a fuss people make about fidelity, exclaimed Lord Henry. Why, even a love of this purely a question for physiology. It has nothing to do with our own will. Young men want to be faithful, and they're not. Old men want to be faithless, cannot. That is all one can say. Don't go to the theatre tonight, Dorian, said Hallward. Stop. Dine with me. I can't, Basil. Why? Because I promised Lord Henry what and I would go with him. He won't like you better for keeping your promises. He always breaks his own. I beg you, do not go. Dorian Gray laughed and shook his head. I entreat you. The lad hesitated and looked over at Lord Henry. He was watching them from the tea table with an amused smile. I must go, Basil, he answered. Very well, said Halbert, and he went over and laid down his cup on the tree. It is rather late, and as you have to dress, you'd better lose no time. Goodbye, Harry. Goodbye, Dorian. Come and see me soon. Come tomorrow. Certainly. You will forget? No, of course not, cried Dorian. And... Harry? Yes, Basil? Remember what I asked you when we were in the garden this morning?
I've forgotten it. I trust ye. Yeah. I wish I could trust myself, said Lord Henry, laughing. Come, Mr. Gray. The hansom is outside and I can drop you at your own place. Goodbye, Basil. It has been a most interesting afternoon. And as the door closed behind them, the painter flung himself down onto a sofa. A look of pain came into his face. Chapter 3 At half past twelve next day, Lord Henry Wotton strolled from the Curzon Street over to the Albany to call on his uncle, Lord Firmer, a genial if somewhat rough-mannered old bachelor, whom the outside world called selfish because it derived no particular benefit from him, but was considered generous by society as he fed the people who amused him. His father had been our ambassador at Madrid when Isabella was young and prim unthought of, but had retired from diplomatic service in a capricious moment of annoyance not being offered the embassy of Paris, post to which he considered that he was fully entitled to by reason of his birth, his indolence, the good English of his dispatches, and his inordinate passion for pleasure. Son, who had been his father's secretaries, had resigned along with his chief, somewhat foolishly as was thought at the time, and unsucceeding some months later to the title, set himself to the serious study of the great aristocratic art of doing absolutely nothing. He had two large townhouses, but preferred to live in chambers as it was less trouble, and took most of his meals at the club. He paid some attention to the management of his collieries in Midland counties, excusing himself from this taint of industry on the ground that one could afford to do so. The advantage of having coal was that it enabled the gentleman to afford the decency of burning wood on his own hearth. In politics, he was a Tory, except when the Tories were in office during which the period he roundly abused them for being a pack of radicals. He was a hero to his valet, who bullied him, and a terror to most of his relations, whom he bullied in turn. Only England could have produced him, and he always said that the country was going to the dogs. His principles were out of date, but there was a good deal to be said for his prejudices. When Lord Henry entered the room, he found his uncle sitting in a rough shooting coat, smoking a cheroot and grumbling over the times. Well, Harry, said the old gentleman, what brings you out so early? I thought you dandies never got up till two, or were not visible till five. Pure family affection, I assure you, Uncle George. I wanted to get something out of you. Money, I suppose, said Lord Firmer, making a wry face. Well, sit down and tell me about it. Young people nowadays imagine that money is everything. Yes, murmured Lord Henry, settling his buttonhole in his coat. And when they grow older, they know it. But I don't want money. There's only people who pay their bills who want that, Uncle George, and I never pay mine. Credit is the capital of a younger son, and one lives charmingly upon it. Besides, I always deal with Dartmoor's tradesmen, and consequently they never bother me. What I want is information. Not useful information, of course. Useless information. Well, I can tell you anything that is in an English blue book. Harry, although these fellows nowadays write a lot of nonsense. When I was in the diplomatic, things were much better. But I hear they let them in now by examination. What can you expect? 
examination, sir. A pure humbug from beginning to end. If a man is a gentleman, he knows quite enough. And if he's not a gentleman, whatever he knows is bad for him. Mr. Dorian Gray does not belong to Blue Books, Uncle George, said Lord Henry, languidly. Mr. Dorian Gray? Who's he? asked Lord Firmer, knitted in his bushy white eyebrows. That's what I've come to learn, Uncle George. Or rather, I know who he is. He is the last Lord Kelso's grandson. His mother was a Devereux, Lady Margaret Devereux. I want you to tell me about his mother. What was she like? Whom did she marry? You've known nearly everybody in your time, so you might have known her. I'm very much interested in Mr. Gray at present. I've only just met him. Kelso's grandson, echoed the old gentleman. Kelso's grandson. Of course. I knew his mother intimately. I believe I was at her christening. She was an extraordinary beautiful girl, Margaret Devereux. Made all of the men frantic by running away with a penniless young fellow. A mere nobody, sir. A subaltern in a foot regiment or something of that kind. Certainly. I remember the whole thing as if it happened yesterday. The poor chap was killed in a duel at a spa a few months after the marriage. There's an ugly story about it. They said Kelso got some rascally adventure, some Belgian brute, to insult his son-in-law in public. Pet him, sir. To do it. Paid him. Let the fellow spitted his man as if he'd been a pigeon. The thing was hushed up, but it got. Kelso ate his chop alone at the club for some time afterwards. He brought his daughter back with him, I was told, and she never spoke to him again. Yes, it was bad business. The girl died too. Died within a year. So, she left the son, did she? I'd forgotten that. What sort of boy is he? Is he like his mother? He must be a good-looking chap. He is very good-looking, assented Lord Henry. I hope he will fall into proper hands, continued the old man. He should have a pot of money waiting for him, if Kelso did the right thing by him. His mother had money, too. All the Selby property came to her through her grandfather. Her grandfather hated Kelso, thought him a mean dog. He was, too. Came to Madrid once when I was there. That was shame of him. The Queen used to ask me about the English noble who was always quarrelling with the cabmen about their fares. It made quite a story of it. I didn't dare show my face at court for a month. I hope he treated his grandson better than he did the Jarvis. I don't know, answered Lord Henry. I fancy that the boy will be well off. He's not of age yet. He has Selby, I know. Told me so. And his mother was very beautiful. Margaret Devereux was one of the loveliest creatures I ever saw, Harry. What on earth induced her to behave as she did? I could never understand. She could have married anybody she chose. Carlington was mad after her. She was a romantic, though. All of the women of that family were. The men were a poor lot, but... Yeah, the women were wonderful. Carlington went on his knees to her. Told me so himself. She laughed at him. There wasn't a girl in London at the time who wasn't after him. And, by the way, Harry, talking about silly marriages, what is this humbug your father tells me about Dartmoor wanting to marry an American? Aren't English girls good enough for him? It is rather fashionable to marry Americans just now, Uncle George. 
I'll back English women against the world, Harry, said Lord Fermor, striking the table with his fist. The betting is on the Americans. They don't last, I'm told, muttered his uncle. A long engagement exhausts them, but they are as capital as a steeplechase. They take things flying. I don't think Dartmoor has a chance. Who are her people? grumbled the old gentleman. Has she got any? Lord Henry shook his head. American girls are as clever at concealing their parents as English women are at concealing their past, he said, rising to go. They are pork packers, I suppose. I hope so, Uncle George. Dartmoor's sake. Told the pork packing is the most lucrative profession in America, after politics. Is she pretty? She behaves as if she were beautiful. Most American women do. It's the secret of their charm. Why can't these American women stay in their own country? They always tell us that it's the paradise for women. It is. And that is the reason why, like Eve, they are so excessively anxious to get out of it, said Lord Henry. Goodbye, Uncle George. I should be late for lunch if I stop any longer. Thanks for giving me the information I wanted. I always like to know everything about my new friends and nothing about my old ones. Where are you lunching, Harry? At Aunt Agatha's. I've asked myself and Mr. Gray. He is her latest protege. Well, tell your Aunt Agatha, Harry, not to bother me on any more with her charity appeals. I am absolutely sick of them. Why, the good woman thinks I have nothing to do but to write checks for her silly fads. All right, Uncle George, I'll tell her. But it won't have any effect. Philanthropic people lose all sense of humanity. It is their distinguishing characteristic. The old gentleman growled approvingly and rang the doorbell for his servant. Lord Henry passed up the low arcade into Burlington Street and turned his steps in the direction of Berkeley Square. So that was the story of Dorian Gray's parentage. Crudely as it had been told to him, it had yet stirred him by its suggestion of a strange, almost modern romance. A beautiful woman risking everything for a mad passion. A few wild weeks of happiness cut short by a hideous, treacherous crime. Months of voiceless agony, and then a child born in pain. The mother snatched away by death. The boy left the solitude and the tyranny of an old and loveless man. Yes, it was an interesting background. Opposed the lad, made him more perfect, as it were. Behind every exquisite thing that existed, there was something tragic. Words had to be in travail, but the meanest flower might blow. And how charming he had been at dinner the night before, as with startled eyes and lips, parted in the frightened pleasure he had sat opposite to him in the club, with the red candlesticks staining to a richer rose in the awakening wonder of his face. Talking to him was like playing upon an exquisite violin. He answered every touch and thrill of the bow. There was something terribly enthralling in the exercise of influence. No other activity was like it. To project one's soul into some gracious form, let it tarry there for a moment. To hear one's own intellectual views echoed back to one with all of the added music of passion and youth convey one's temperament into another as though it were a subtle fluid or a strange perfume. There was a real joy in that. Perhaps the most satisfying joy left us in an age so limited and vulgar as our own. An age grossly carnal in its pleasures. 
and grossly common in its seams. He was a marvellous type too, this lad, whom by so curious a chance he had met in Basil's studio, what could be fashioned into a marvellous type at any rate. Grace was his, and the white purity of boyhood, and beauty such as the old Greek marbles kept for us. There was nothing that one could not do with him. He could be made into a titan or a toy. What a pity it was that such beauty would be destined to fade. Basil. From a psychological point of view, how interesting he was. The new manner in art, the fresh mode of looking at life, suggested so strangely by the merely visible presence of one who was unconscious of it at all. The silent spirit that dwelt and dwindled in the dim woodland and walked unseen in open field, suddenly showing herself, dryad-like and not afraid. Because in the soul who sought for her there, had been awakened that wonderful vision to which alone are wonderful things revealed. The mere shapes and patterns of things becoming, as it were, refined, and gaining a new kind of symbolical value, as though they were themselves patterns of some other, more perfect form, whose shadow they were made real. How strange it all was. He'd remembered something like it in history. Was it not Plato, that artist and thought, who had first analysed it. Was it not Bunatari, who had carved it on the coloured marbles of the sonnet sequence? But in her own century, it was strange. Yes, he would try to be Dorian Gray. What, without knowing it, the lad was to the painter who had fashioned the wonderful portrait. He would seek to dominate him. Had already, indeed, half done so. He would make that wonderful spirit his own something fascinating in this sun of love and death. Suddenly, he stopped and glanced up at the houses. He found that he had passed his aunt some distance and, smiling to himself, turned back. When he entered the somewhat sombre hall, the butler told him that they'd gone in to lunch. He gave one of the footmen his hat and stick and passed into the dining room. Late, as usual, Harry, cried his aunt, shaking her head at him. He invented a facile excuse, and having taken the vacant seat next to her, looked around to see who was there. Dorian bowed to him shyly from the opposite end of the table, and a flush of pleasure stealing into his cheek. Opposite was the Duchess of Harley, a lady of admirable good nature and good temper, much liked by everyone in Europe, one of those ample architectural proportions that in women who are not duchesses are described by contemporary historians as stoutness. Next to her, sat on her right, was Sir Thomas Burton, a radical member of Parliament, who had followed his leader in public life, and in private life followed the best cooks, dining with the Tories, thinking with the Liberals, in accordance with a wise and well-known rule. The post on her left was occupied by Mr Erskine of Treadley, an old gentleman of considerable charm and culture, who had fallen, however, into bad habits of silence, having as he explained once to Lady Agatha, said everything he had to say before he was thirty. His own neighbour was Mrs. Valander, one of his aunt's oldest friends, perfect saint amongst women, but so dreadfully dowdy that she reminded one of a badly bound hymn Fortunately for him, she had on the other side Lord Faudel, a most intelligent middle-aged mediocrity, 
was bald as a ministerial statement in the House of Commons, with whom she was conversing in that intensely earnest manner, which is in one unpardonable error, as he had remarked on himself, that all really good people fall into, and from which none of them ever could quite escape. We were talking about poor Dartmoor, Lord Henry, cried the Duchess, nodding pleasantly to him across the table. Do you think you'll really marry this fascinating young person? I believe she has already made up her mind to propose to him, Duchess. How dreadful, exclaimed Lady Agatha. Really, someone should interfere. I am told, on excellent authority, that her father keeps an American dry goods store said Sir Thomas, looking supercilious. My uncle has already suggested pork packing, Sir Thomas. Dry goods? What are American dry goods? asked the Duchess, raising her large hands in wonder and accentuating the verb. American novels, answered Lord Henry, helping himself to some quail. The Duchess looked puzzled. Don't mind him, my dear, whispered Lady Agatha. He never means anything that he says. When America was discovered, said the radical member, and began to give some wearisome facts. Like all people who try to exhaust a subject, he exhausted his listeners. The Duchess sighed and exercised her privilege of interruption. Wish to goodness it had never been discovered at all, she exclaimed. Really, our girls have no chance these days. It's most unfair. Perhaps, after all, America never has been discovered, said Mr. Erskine. I myself would say that it has merely been detected. Oh, but I have seen specimens of the inhabitants, answered the Duchess vaguely. I must confess that most of them are extremely pretty. And they dress well, too. They get all their dresses in Paris. I wish I could afford to do the same. They say that when good Americans die, they go to Paris, chuckled Sir Thomas. He had a large wardrobe of humorous cast-off clothes. Really? Where do bad Americans go when they die? inquired the Duchess. They go to America, murmured Lord Henry. Sir Thomas frowned. I'm afraid that your nephew is prejudiced against that great country, he said to Lady Agatha. I've travelled all over it, in cars provided by the directors who, in such matters, are extremely civil. I assure you that it is an education to visit it. Once we really see Chicago in order to be educated, asked Mr. Erskine, plaintively. I don't feel up to the journey. Sir Thomas waved his hand. Mr. Erskine has the world on his shelves. We practical men like to see things, not to read about them. The Americans are an extremely interesting people. They're absolutely reasonable. I think that is their distinguishing characteristic. Yes, Mr. Erskine, and absolutely reasonable people. I assure you there is no nonsense about the Americans. Dreadful, cried Lord Henry. I can stand brute force, but brute reason is quite unbearable. There's something unfair about its use. It's hitting below the intellect. I do not understand you, said Sir Thomas, growing rather red. I do, Lord Henry, murmured Mr. Erskine with a smile. Paradoxes are all very well in their way, rejoined the baronet. Was that a paradox? asked Mr. Erskine. I didn't think so. Perhaps it was. Well, the way of paradoxes is the way of truth. To test reality, we must really see the tightrope. When the verities become acrobats, we can judge them. 
Dear me, said Lady Agatha, how you men argue. I'm sure I can never quite make out what you're talking about. Oh, Harry, I'm quite vexed with you. Why do you try to persuade our nice Mr. Dorian Gray to give up the East End? I assure you it'd be quite invaluable. They would love his playing. I want him to play with me, cried Lord Henry, smiling, as he looked down the table and caught the bright answering face. They're so unhappy in Whitechapel, continued Lady Agatha. I can sympathise with everything, except suffering, said Lord Henry, shrugging his shoulders. I cannot stand with that. It's too ugly, too horrible, too distressing. There's something terribly morbid in the modern sympathy with pain. One should sympathise with the colour, the beauty, the joy of life. The less said about life's sores, the better. Still, the East End is a very important problem, remarked Sir Thomas with a grave shake of the head. Quite so, answered the young lord. It is the problem of slavery, and we try to solve it by amusing the slaves. Politician looked at him keenly. And what change do you propose then? he asked. Lord Henry laughed. I don't desire to change anything in England except the weather, he answered. But I'm quite content with the philosophic contemplation. But at the 19th century has gone bankrupt, though, over an over-expenditure of sympathy. I would suggest that we should appeal to science to put us straight. The advantage of the emotions is that they lead us astray. And the advantage of science is that it's not emotional. We have such grave responsibilities, ventured Mrs. Valander timidly. Terribly grave, echoed Lady Agatha. Lord Henry looked over Mr. Erskine. Humanity takes itself too seriously. It is the world's original sin. If the caveman had known how to laugh, history would have been different. You really are very comforting, warbled the Duchess. I've always felt rather guilty when I come to see your dear aunt, for I take no interest at all in the East End. For the future, I shall be able to look at her in the face without a blush. A blush is very becoming, Duchess, remarked Lord Henry. Only when one is young, she answered. When an old woman like myself blushes, it's a very bad sign. Ah, Lord Henry, I wish you would tell me how to become young again. He thought for a moment. Can you remember any great error that you committed in your early days, Duchess? He asked, looking at her across the table. A great many, I fear, she cried. Then commit them over again, he said gravely. To get back to one's youth, one has merely to repeat one's follies. A delightful theory, she exclaimed. You must put it into practice. Dangerous theory, came Sir Thomas's tight lips. Lady Agatha shook her head but could not help but be being amused. Mr. Erskine listened. Yes, continued, that is one of the great secrets of life. Nowadays, most people die of a sort of creeping common sense and discover when it's too late that the only things one never regrets are one's mistakes. A laugh ran around the table. He played with the idea, grew willful, tossed it into the air and transformed it, let it escape and recaptured it made it iridescent with fancy and winged it with paradox. The praise of folly, as he went on, soared into philosophy. Philosophy herself became young and catching the mad music of pleasure, wearing, one might fancy, her Weinstein robed and wreath of ivy, danced like Bacchus over the hills of life, and mocked the slow Silenaeus for being sober. 
Facts fled before like frightened forest things. Her white feet trod huge press against which wise Omar sits, till the seething grape juice rose round her bare limbs in waves of purple bubbles, crawled in red foam over the vat's black, dripping, sloping sides. It was an extraordinary improvisation. He felt the eyes of Dorian Gray were fixed on him, and the consciousness that amongst his audience there was one whose temperament he wished to fascinate seemed to give his wit keenness, and to lend colour to his imagination. He was brilliant, fantastic, irresponsible. He charmed his listeners out of themselves, and they followed his pipe laughing. Dorian Gray never took his gaze off him, but sat like one under a spell, smiles chasing each other over his lips and wandering, growing graves in his darkened eyes. At last, Liveried in the costume of the age, reality entered the room, in the shape of a servant to tell the Duchess that her carriage was waiting. She wrung her hands in mock despair. How annoying, she cried. I must go. I have to call for my husband at the club, taken to some absurd meeting at the Willis' rooms, where he's going to be in the chair. If I'm lady, he's sure to be furious, and I couldn't have a scene in this bonnet. It's far too fragile. A harsh word would ruin it. I must go, dear Agatha. Goodbye, Lord Henry. You really are quite delightful and dreadfully demoralising. I'm sure I don't know what to say about your views. You must come and dine with us some night. Tuesday? Are you disengaged Tuesday? For you, I would throw over anybody, Duchess, said Lord Henry with a bow. That is very nice and very wrong of you, she cried. So mind how you come. And she swept out of the room followed by Lady Agatha and the other ladies. When Lord Henry had sat down again, Mr. Erskine moved around and, taking a chair close to him, placed his hand upon his arm. You took books away, he said. Why don't you write one? I'm too fond of reading books to curb to write them, Mr. Erskine. I should like to write a novel, certainly. A novel that would be as lovely as a Persian carpet and as unreal. But there is no literary public in England for anything except newspapers, primers and encyclopedias. Of all the people in the world, English have the least sense of beauty of literature. I fear you're right, Sir Mr. Erskine. I myself used to have literary ambitions, but I gave them up a long time ago. And now, my dear young friend, if you would allow me to call you so, may I ask if you really meant all that you said to us at lunch? I quite forget what I said, smiled Lord Henry. Was it all very bad? Very bad indeed. In fact, I consider you extremely dangerous. And if anything happens to our good Duchess, we shall all look on you as being primarily responsible. But I should like to talk to you about life. The generation into which I was born was tedious. Someday, when you're tired of London, come down to Treadley and expound to me your philosophy of pleasure over some admirable burgundy that I am fortunate enough to possess. I shall be quite charmed. Visit to Treadley would be a great privilege. It has a perfect host and a perfect library. You will complete it, answered the old gentleman, with a courteous bow. Now, I must bid our goodbye to your excellent aunt. Lanjou at the Athenaeum. It is the hour where we sleep there. All of you, Mr. Erskine? Forty of us, in forty armchairs. We are practising for an English academy of letters. Lord Henry laughed and rose. I'm going to the park, he cried. 
As he was passing out of the door, Dorian Gray touched him on the arm. Let me come with you, murmured. But I thought you had promised Basil Hallward to go and see him, answered Lord Henry. Uh, I would sooner come with you, yes. I feel I must come with you. Do let me. And you promised to talk to me all the time? No one ever talks so wonderfully as you do. I have talked quite enough for today, said Lord Henry, smiling. All I want now is to look at life. You may come and look at it with me, if you care to. Chapter 4 One afternoon, a month later, Dorian Gray was reclining in a luxurious armchair in the little library of Lord Henry's house in Mayfair. It was, in its way, a very charming room, with its high-panelled wainscoting of olive steamed oak, its cream-coloured frieze and ceiling of raised plasterwork, and its brick-dust felt carpet strewn with the silk long fringe Persian rugs. On a tiny sandwood table stood a statuette by Clodden, and beside it lay a copy of La Saint Lavelle, bound for Margaret of Lavoy by Clovive, and powdered with the gilt daisies that the Queen had selected for her device. Some large blue china jars and parrot tulips were arranged on the mantel shelf, and through the small leaded panes of the window streamed the apricot coloured light of a summer day in London. Lord Henry had not yet come in. He was always late on principle, his principle being that punctuality is the thief of time. So the lad was looking rather sulky, as with listless fingers he turned over the pages of an elaborately illustrated edition of Manon Lescaut that he had found in one of the bookcases. The formal, monotonous ticking of the Louis Quatre's clock annoyed him. Once or twice he thought of going away. At last, he heard a step outside and the door opened. How late you are, Harry, he murmured. I'm afraid it is not, Harry, Mr. Grey, answered a shrill voice. He glanced quickly around and rose to his feet. I beg your pardon, I thought... I thought it was my husband. It is only his wife. You must let me introduce myself. I know you quite well by your photographs. I think my husband's got 17 of them. Not 17, Lady Henry. Well, 18 then. And I saw you with him the other night at the opera. She laughed nervously as she spoke and watched him with her vague forget-me-not eyes. She was a curious woman, whose dresses always looked as if they'd been designed in a rage and put on in a tempest. She was usually in love with somebody, and, as her passion was never returned, she had kept all of her illusions. She tried to look picturesque, but had only succeeded in looking untidy. Her name was Victoria. She had a perfect mania for going to church. That was Longhain, Lady Henry, I think. Yes, it was clear, at Longhain. I like Wagner's music better than anybody's. So loud that one can talk the whole time without other people hearing what one says. That's a great advantage. Don't you think, Mr. Gray? The same nervous, staccato laugh broke from her thin lips, and her fingers began to play with the long tortoiseshell paper knife. But Dorian smiled and shook his head. Fred, I don't think so, Lady Henry. I'd never talked during music. At least, during good music. If one hears bad music, it is one's duty to drown it in conversation. That is one of Harry's views, isn't it, Mr. Gray? I want to hear Harry's views from his friends. It's the only way I get to know of him. 
But you must not think that I don't like good music. I adore it. But I am afraid of it. It makes me too romantic. I've simply worshipped pianists. Two at a time, sometimes. Harry tells me. I don't know what it is about them. Perhaps it's that they are foreigners. They all are, aren't they? Even those that are born in England become foreigners after a time, don't they? So very clever of them. And such a compliment to art. It makes it quite cosmopolitan, doesn't it? You've never been to any of my parties, have you, Mr. Gray? You must come. I can't afford orchids, but I spare no expense in foreigners. They make one's room look so picturesque. But here's Harry. Harry, came in to look for you to ask you something. I forget what it was. And I found Mr. Gray here. We have had such a pleasant chat about music. Not quite the same ideas. No, I don't think our ideas are quite different, but he has been most pleasant. And I am so glad I've seen him. I'm charmed, my love, quite charmed, said Lord Henry, elevating his dark, crescent-shaped eyebrows and looking at them both with an amused smile. So sorry I'm late, Dorian. I went to look after a piece of old brocade in Warder Street, and I've had to bargain for hours for it. Nowadays, people know the price of everything and the value of nothing. I'm afraid I must be going, exclaimed Lady Henry, breaking an awkward silence with her silly, subtle laugh. I promised to drive with the Duchess. Goodbye, Mr. Grey. Goodbye, Harry. You're dining out, I suppose? So am I. Perhaps I shall see you at Lady Thornbury's. I dare say it, my dear, said Lord Henry, shutting the door behind her, as, looking like a bird of paradise that had been out all night in the rain, she flitted out of the room, leaving a faint odour of Fagelli Pinelli. Daddy lit a cigarette and flung himself down on the sofa. Never marry a woman with straw-coloured hair, Dorian, he said, after a few puffs. Why, Harry? Because they're so sentimental. But I like sentimental people. Never marry at all, Dorian. Men marry because they're tired. Women because they're curious. Both are often disappointed. I don't think I'm likely to marry, Harry. I am too much in love. That is one of your aphorisms. I'm putting it into practice as I do pretty much everything else that you say. Who are you in love with? asked Lord Henry, after a pause. With an actress, said Dorian Gray, blushing. Lord Henry shrugged his shoulders. That is a rather commonplace debut. You would not say so if you saw her, Harry. Who is she? Her name is Sybil Vane. Never heard of her. No one has. People will someday, however. She is a genius. My dear boy, no woman is a genius. Women are a decorative sex. They never have anything to say, but they say it charmingly. Women represent the triumph of matter over mind, just as men represent the triumph of mind over morals. Harry, how can you? My dear Dorian, it's quite true. I'm analysing women at present, so I ought to know. The subject is not so obtrusive as it once was. I find that, ultimately, there are only two kinds of women, the plain and the coloured. The plain women are very useful. If you want to gain a reputation for respectability, you'd merely to take them down to supper. The other women are very charming. They commit one mistake, however. They paint in order to try and look young. Our grandmothers painted in order to try and look talk brilliantly. Rouge and Esprit used to go together. That's all over now. 
As long as a woman can look 10 years younger than her daughter, she's perfectly satisfied. As for conversation, there are only five women in London worth talking to, and two of these can't be admitted into decent society. However, tell me about your genius. How long have you known her? Harry, your views terrify me. Never mind that. How long have you known her? About three weeks. And where did you come across her? I will tell you, Harry. But you mustn't be unsympathetic about it. After all, it never would have happened if I'd not met you. You filled me with a wild desire to know everything about life. For days after I met you, seeming just to throb in my veins. I lounged in the park or strolled down Piccadilly. I used to look at everyone who passed me and wonder with a mad curiosity what sort of lives they led. Some of them fascinated me. Others filled me with terror. There was an exquisite poison in the air. I had a passion for sensations. Well, one evening at about seven o'clock, I determined to go out in search of some adventure. I felt this grey, monstrous London of ours, with its myriad of people, its sordid sinners and its splendid sins, as you once phrased it. I must have something in store for me. I fancied a thousand things. The mere danger gave me a sense of delight. I remembered what you said to me on that wonderful evening when we first dined together, but the search for beauty being the real secret of life. I don't know what I expected, but I went out and I wandered eastward, soon losing my way in a labyrinth of grimy streets and black, grassless squares. But half past eight, I passed by an absurd little theatre, with flaring gas jets and gaudy playbills. I hid his due, and the most amazing waistcoat I ever beheld in my life was standing at the entrance, smoking a vile cigar. A greasy ringlets, and an enormous diamond blazed in the centre of his old shirt. Have a box, my lord, he said when he saw me, and he took off his hat with an air of gorgeous servility. There was something about him, Harry, that amused me. He was such a monster. And you'll laugh at me, I know, but I really went in and paid a whole guinea for the stage box. To the present day, I cannot make out why I did so. Unless, yet, if I had not. My dear Harry, if I hadn't, I shouldn't have missed the greatest romance of my life. I see that you're laughing. Horrid of you. I'm not laughing, Dorian. At least, I'm not laughing at you. But you should not say that it is the greatest romance of your life. You should say it's the first romance of your life. We'll always be loved. And you'll always be loved in love. A grand passion is the privilege of people who have nothing to do. That is one use of the idle classes of the country. Be afraid. There are exquisite things in store for you, and this is merely the beginning. I think my nature so shallow, cried Dorian Gray, angrily. No, I think your nature is so deep. How do you mean? My dear boy, the people who love only once in their lives are really shallow people what they call their loyalty and their fidelity. I call either the lethargy of custom or the lack of it imagination. Faithfulness to the emotional life, what consistency is to the life of the intellect, simply a confession of failure. Faithfulness. I must analyse it someday. Passion for property is in it. There are many things that we would throw away if we were not afraid that others might pick them up. But I don't want to interrupt you. Go on with your little story. Well, I found myself seated in a hard little private box, with a vulgar drop scene staring at me in the face. 
He looked out from behind the curtain and surveyed the house. It was a tawdry affair. All cupids and cornucopias, like a third-rate wedding cake. The gallery and the pit were fairly full, but the two rows of dingy stalls were quite empty, and there was hardly a person in what I suppose they called the dress circle. Women went about with oranges and ginger beer, and there was a terrible consumption of nuts going on. It must have been just like the palmy days of the British drama. Just like, I should fancy, and very depressing. I began to wonder what on earth I should do when I caught sight of the playbill. What do you think the play was, Harry? I should think The Idiot Boy or Dumb But Innocent. Our fathers used to like that sort of piece, I believe. The longer I live, Dorian, the more keenly I feel that whatever was good enough for our fathers is just not good enough for us. In art, as in politics, as grandparents, de toujours tour. This play was good enough for us, Harry. It's called Romeo and Juliet. I must admit, I was rather annoyed at the idea of seeing Shakespeare done in such a wretched hole of a place. Still, I felt interested in sort of a way. At any rate, I determined to wait for the first act. It was a dreadful orchestra, presided over by a young Hebrew who sat at a cracked piano that nearly drove me away. But at last the drop scene was drawn up and the play began. Romeo was a stout elderly gentleman with corked eyebrows, a husky tragedy voice, and a figure like a beer barrel. Norcusio was almost as bad. He was played by the low comedian, who had introduced gags of his own almost unfriendly terms with Pitt. They were both as grotesque as the scenery, but that looked as if it had just come out of a country booth. But Juliet. Harry, imagine a girl, hardly seventeen years of age, with a little flower-like face, a small Greek head with plaited coils of dark brown hair, eyes that were violet wells of passion, lips that were like petals of a rose. She was the loveliest thing I've ever seen in my life. You said to me once that pathos left you unmoved, but that beauty, mere beauty, could fill your eyes with tears. I tell you, Harry, I could hardly see this girl for the mist of tears that came across me, and her voice. I never heard such a voice. It was very low at first, with deep mellow notes that seemed to fall singly upon one's ear. Then it became a little louder. It sounded like a flute or a distant heart boy. In the garden scene it had a tremulous ecstasy that one hears just before dawn when the nightingales are singing. There were moments later on when it had the wild passion of violins. You know how a voice can stir one. Your voice and the voice of Sybil Vane are two of the things that I shall never forget. When I close my eyes, I can hear them, and each of them say something different, and I don't know which to follow. Why should I not love her? Harry, I do love her. She's everything to me in my life. Night after night, I go to see her play. One evening, she is Rosalind. The next evening, she is Imogen. I've seen her die in the gloom of an Italian tomb, sucking the poison from her lover's lips. I've watched her wandering through the forest of Arden, dressed as a pretty boy in hose and doublet and dainty cap. She has been mad, and has come into the presence of a guilty king, and given him rude to wear and bitter herbs to taste of. She has been innocent, and the black hands of jealousy have crushed her reed-like throat. I've seen her in every age and in every costume. Ordinary women never appeal to one's imagination. They're limited in their century. No glamour ever transfigures them. 
one knows their minds as easily as one knows their bonnets. One can always find them. There's no mystery in any of them. They ride in the park in the morning and chatter at tea parties in the afternoon. They have their stereotyped smile and their fashionable manner. And they're quite obvious. But an actress. How different an actress is. Harry, why didn't you tell me the only thing worth loving is an actress? Because I've loved so many of them, Dorian. Oh yes, horrid people with dyed hair and painted faces. Don't run down dyed hair and painted faces. There's an extraordinary charm in them. Sometimes, said Lord Henry. I wish now I'd not told you about Sibylvain. You could not have helped telling me, Dorian. All through your life you will tell me everything that you will do. Yes, Harry. I believe that's true. I cannot help telling you things. Every curious influence over me. If I ever did a crime, I'd come and confess it to you. You would understand me. But like you, the willful sunbeams of life don't commit crimes, Dorian. But I am much obliged for the compliment all the same. And now, tell me. Reach me the matches like a good boy. Thanks. What are your actual relations with Sibylvain? Dorian Gray leapt to his feet, with flushed cheeks and burning eyes. Harry, Sibylvain is sacred. It is only the sacred things that are worth touching, Dorian, said Lord Henry, with a strange touch of pathos in his voice. But why should you be annoyed? I suppose she will belong to you someday. When one is in love, one always begins by deceiving oneself, and one always ends by deceiving others. That is what the word calls a romance. You know her, at any rate, I suppose. Of course I know her. On the first night I was at the theatre, a horrid old Jew came round to the box after the performance was over and offered to take me behind the scenes and introduce me to her. I was furious with him. I told him that Juliet had been dead for hundreds of years and that her body was lying in a marble tome in Rome. I think from his blank look of amazement, he was under the impression that I'd taken too much champagne or something. I'm not surprised. Then he asked me if I wrote for any of the newspapers. I told him that I never even read them. He seemed terribly disappointed at that and confided in me all the dramatic critics were in conspiracy against him and that they were every one of them to be bought. Should not wonder if he's quite right there. But on the other hand, judging from their appearance, most of them cannot be all expensive. Well, he seemed to think that they were beyond his means, laughed Orion. By this time, however, the lights were being put out in the theatre, and I had to go. He wanted me to try some cigars that he strongly recommended. I declined. The next night, of course, I arrived at the place again. When he saw me, he made a low bow and assured me that I was a magnificent patron of the art. He was a most offensive brute, though he had come to an extraordinary passion for Shakespeare. He once told me, with an air of pride, that his five bankruptcies were entirely due to the bard, as he insisted on calling him. I seem to think he thinks it's a distinction. It was a distinction, my dear Dorian. A great distinction. Most people become bankrupt through having invested too heavily in the prose of life. To have ruined oneself over poetry is an honour. But when did you first speak to Miss Sibylvain? The third night. She'd been playing Rosalind. I couldn't help but going round. I'd thrown her some flowers and she looked at me. At least I fancied that she did. But the old Jew was persistent. He seemed determined to take me behind, so I consented. 
It was curious, my not wanting to know her. Was it? No, I don't think so. My dear Harry, why? I'll tell you some other time. Now I want to know about the girl. Sybil? Well, she was so shy, so gentle. There's something but of a child of her. Her eyes opened wide in exquisite wonder when I told her what I thought of her performance. She seemed quite unconscious of her power. I think we're both rather nervous. The old Jew stood grinning at the doorway of the dusty green room, making elaborate speeches about us both, while we stood looking at each other like children. He would insist on in calling me my lord, so I had to assure Sybil that I was not anything of that kind. She said quite simply to me, You look more like a prince. I must call you Prince Charming. Upon my word, Dory, Miss Sybil knows how to play compliments. You don't understand her, Harry. She regarded me merely as a person in a play. She knows nothing of life. She lives with her mother, a faded, tired old woman who played Lady Capulet in some magenta dressing wrapper on the first night. It looks as if she's seen better days. I know that look. It depresses me, murmured Lord Henry, examining his rings. The Jew wanted me to tell her story, but I said it didn't interest me. You're quite right. There's always something infinitely mean about other people's tragedies. Sybil's the only thing I care about. What is it to me where she came from? From her little head to her little feet. She's absolutely and entirely divine. Every night of my life I go to see her act. And every night she's more marvellous. That is the reason, I suppose, that you never dine with me now. thought you must have some other curious romance on hand. You have, but... It's not quite what I expected. My dear Harry, we either lunch or sup together every day, and I've been to the opera with you several times, said Dorian, opening his blue eyes in wonder. Yes, but you always come dreadfully late. Well, I can't help but going to see Sybil play, cried, even if it is only for a single act. I get hungry for her presence, and when I think of the wonderful soul that is hidden away in that ivory body, I'm filled with awe. You can dine with me tonight, Dorian, can't you? He shook his head. Tonight she is Imogen, he answered. Tomorrow night she'll be Juliet. When is she Sybil Vane? Never. I congratulate you. How horrid you are. She is all the great heroines of the world in one. She is more than an individual. You laugh, but I tell you that she is a genius. I love her, and I must make her love me. You, who know all the secrets of life, Tell me how to charm Sylvain to love me. I want to make Romeo jealous. I want the dead lovers of the world to hear our laughter and to grow sad. I want a breath of our passion to stir their dust into consciousness and to wake their ashes in pain. My God, Harry, how do I worship her? He was walking up and down the room as he spoke. Hectic spots of red burned on his cheeks. He was terribly excited. Lord Henry watched him with the subtle sense of pleasure. How different he was now from the shy, frightened boy he'd first met in Holbert's studio. His nature had developed like a flower and had borne blossoms of scarlet flame. Out of its secret hiding place had crept his soul and desire had come to meet it on the way. What do you propose to do? said Lord Henry at last. Want you and Basil to come with me some night and see her act. I've not the slightest fear of the result. 
You're certain to acknowledge your genius. It will get out of the Jew's hands, bound to him for three years, at least for two years and eight months from the present time. I shall have to pay him something, of course. When all that's settled, I shall take a West End theatre and bring her out properly. She'll make the world as mad as she has made me. That would be impossible, my dear boy. Yes, she will. She's not merely art, consummate art instinct in her, but she has personality also. You've often told me that it's personalities, not principles that move the age. Well, what night shall we go? Let's see. Tonight is Tuesday. Let us fix for tomorrow. She always plays Juliet tomorrow. All right. The Bristol at eight o'clock, and I will get Basil. Not eight, Harry, please. Half past six. We must there before the curtain rises. We must see her in the first act when she first meets Romeo. Half six? <laughs> what an hour. It'd be like having a meat tea or reading an English novel. It must be seven. No gentleman dines before seven. Shall you see Basil between this and then, or shall I write to him? Dear Basil, I've not laid eyes on him for a week. It's rather horrid of me, as he sent me my portrait in the most beautiful frame, especially designed by himself, though I'm a little jealous of the picture for being a whole month younger than I am. I must admit that I delight in it. Perhaps you'd better write to him. I don't want to see him alone. He says things that annoy me. He actually gives me good advice. Lord Henry smiled. People are very fond of giving away what they need most themselves. It's what I call the depth of generosity. Oh, Basil is the best of fellows, but he seems to me just a bit of a Philistine. Since I've known you, Harry, I've discovered that. Basil, my dear boy, puts everything that is charming of him into that work. Consequence is that he has nothing left for life but his prejudices, his principles, and his common sense. The only artists I've ever known, who they are personally delightful, are bad artists. Good artists exist simply in what they make. Consequently, you're perfectly uninteresting in what they are. A great poet, a really great poet, is the most unpoetical of all creatures. But inferior poets are absolutely fascinating. The worse their rhymes are, the more picturesque they look. The mere fact of having a published book of second-rate sonnets makes a man quite irresistible. He lives the poetry that he cannot write. The others write the poetry that they dare not realise. I wonder is that really so, Harry, said Dorian Gray, putting some perfume on his handkerchief out of a large gold-topped bottle that stood on the shelf. It must be, if you say it. And now, I'm off. Imogen is waiting for me. Don't forget about tomorrow. Bye. As he left the room, Lord Henry's heavy eyelids drooped. He began to think. Certainly few people had ever interested him so much as Dorian Gray. And yet the lad's mad adoration of someone else caused him not the slightest pang of annoyance or jealousy. He was pleased by it. It made him a more interesting study. He had always been enthralled by the methods of natural science. But the ordinary subject matter of that science, it seemed him trivial and of no import. And so he had begun by vivisecting himself as he had ended by vivisecting others. Human life, that appeared to him the one thing worth investigating. Compared to it, there was nothing else of any value. It was true that as one watched life in its curious crucible of pain and pleasure, one could not wear over one's face a mask of glass, 
I'll keep the sulfurous fumes from the troubling brain and make the imagination turbid with monstrous fancies and misshapen dreams. There were poisons so subtle that to know their properties one had to be sickened of them. There were maladies so strange that one had to pass through them as if one sought to understand their nature. And yet, what a great reward one received. How wonderful that the whole world became the one. To notice the curious, hard logic of passion, the emotional-coloured life of their intellect, to observe where they went, what they separated, at what point they were in unison, and at what point they were at discord. There was a delight in that. What matter was the cost? One could never pay too high a price for any sensation. He was conscious, and the thought brought a gleam of pleasure in his brown agate eyes. That it was through certain words of his, musical words said with musical utterance, that Dorian Gray's soul had turned to this white girl and bowed in worship before her. To a large extent, the lad was his own creation. He had made him premature. That was something. Ordinary people waited till life disclosed to them in secrets. But to the few, to the elect, the mysteries of life were revealed before the veil was ever drawn away. Sometimes this was the effect of art chiefly of art of literature, which dealt immediately with the passions and the intellect. But now and then a complex personality took the place and assumed the office of art, which indeed in its way was a real work of art. Life having its elaborate masterpieces just as poetry has, or sculpture, or painting. Yes, the lad was premature. He was gathering his harvest while it was still yet spring. Pulse and passion of youth were to him, but was becoming self-conscious. It was delightful to watch him, with his beautiful face and his beautiful soul. He was a thing to wonder at. It was no matter how it all ended, or was destined to end. He was like one of those gracious figures in a pageant or a play, whose joy seemed to be remote from one, and whose sorrows stir one's sense of beauty, and whose wounds are like red roses. Soul and body, body and soul, how mysterious they were. There was animalism in the soul, and the body had its moments of spirituality. The senses could refine, the intellect could degrade. Who could say where the fleshy impulse created or the physical impulse began? How shallow were the arbitrary definitions of ordinary psychologists? And yet, how difficult to decide between the claims of the various schools? Was the soul a shadow seated in the house of sin? Or was the body really in the soul, as Bruno thought? The separation of spirit from matter was a mystery, and the union of spirit with matter was a mystery too. He began to wonder whether he could make psychology an absolute science that each little spring of life would be revealed to us. As it was, we always misunderstood ourselves, and rarely understood others. Experience was of no ethical value. It was merely the name the men gave to their mistakes. Moralists had, as a rule, regarded it as a mode of warning. I claimed it for a certain ethical efficiency, which the formation of character had praised it as something that taught us what to follow and showed us what to avoid. But there was no motive power in experience. It was as little of an active cause as conscience itself. All that it really demonstrated was that our future would be the same as our past, and that the sin that we had done once, with loathing, we would do many times, and with joy. 
It was clear to him that the experimental method was the only method by which one could arrive at any scientific analysis of the passions. And certainly, Durham Gray was a subject made to his hand, and seemed to promise rich and fruitful results. His sudden mad love for Sybil Vane was a psychological phenomenon of no small interest. There was no doubt that the curiosity had much to do with it. Curiosity and the desire for new experiences. Yet it was not a simple, but a very complex passion. What there was in it was the purely sensuous instinct of boyhood had been transformed by the workings of the imagination. Changed into something that seemed to the lad himself to be remote from sense. Almost for that very reason all the more dangerous. It was the passions about whose origin we deceived ourselves that tyrannised most strongly over us. Our weakest motives were those of nature that we were conscious. It often happened that when we thought we were experimenting on others, we were really just experimenting on ourselves. While Lord Henry sat dreaming on these things, a knock came to the door, and his valet entered and reminded him it was time for dinner. He got up and looked out onto the street. The sunset had smitten into scarlet gold the upper windows of the houses opposite. Canes glowed like plates of heated metal. The sky above was like a faded rose. He thought of his friend's young fiery-coloured life and wondered how it was all going to end. When he arrived home, at half past twelve, he saw a telegram lying on the table. He opened it and found it was from Dorian Gray. It was to tell him that he was engaged to be married to Sybil Fiend. I think that's a good spot to pause this hill, don't you? There's no notes from my uncle there. Nothing circled, but... I still feel like this is important. So, a lot to think about. The guest room is made up for you, as always. We'll go inside. Just go down the corridor, second door to the left. I hope you sleep well. You deserve it.